the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. This is your host, estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. I'm a little bit under the weather today, so if <laughs> weather, a little bit under the weather today, having a hard time speaking clearly as well. <clears throat> Apologize for clearing my throat, but I've got, you know, one of those kinds of things going on where you get junk in your throat sometimes. So uh, I'll try to push through it here and uh, give you a great show, which is always my goal whenever I do my show here. So, first of all, I'd like to let you all know that uh, you can give me a call if you'd like. I had some uh, callers last week live on the radio. You could always call at 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com. That's radio at lawbob, L-A-W-B-O-B dot com. And if you email there, you can email your questions to me there, and I'll be happy to answer them if I'm able to answer them on the air today during the show. Now, um, as uh, those of you who are longer-time listeners know, I've been doing a lot of segments and a lot of shows over the past year talking about problems that arise for people throughout the state of California, not just here in Santa Clara County, where I happen to practice here in San Jose. And I'm going to continue that practice today, and hopefully my voice will hold out for the day. And uh, uh, all of you out there, maybe you could throw up a little prayer for me that I keep my voice and don't lose it halfway through the show. So let's get started. As I say, uh, put your trays in the upright and locked position, seat backs forward, fasten your seat belts because we're about to take off and uh, start the show today. So here's a question coming out of um, out of here in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and someone was asked, "Why would my uh, sibling, who's the trustee, why would that person merge my parents' separate trusts into a trust that says I'm going to be my own trustee after the property is distributed out? Why would this be done?" Now. The the typical reason why this would be done is because the parent's trust provides in it that on the parent's death, the property is going to be distributed not directly to their children, but distributed in trusts for their children. 
Now, this is a type of planning that I do regularly. It's what I refer to as my standard living trust planning. It's my standard planning because most of my clients, quite frankly, do this type of planning when they have a living trust prepared through my office. And what it is is passing the property into a trust that has asset protection for the inheritance for the children or any other heirs who are inheriting. The idea is that instead of passing property directly to someone where they now own it and there's a risk of loss of that property if the person um, gets sued or or otherwise suffers some kind of financial reverse, their inheritance could be subject to that and could actually be at risk. By passing it into trust in a certain way, what you're doing is you are providing that the property can be held separate from the relationships, business activities, professional activities, car driving activities, and um, and also personal finances of the person who's the beneficiary of that trust. So that's likely why this was being done, and um, and hopefully that would would uh, if you're listening today, uh, that would answer your question for you there. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Here we go. Um, here's a situation that does come up now and then. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of dealing with one of these right now in my practice. Great-grandparents left my mother everything in a trust, and it states if my mother were to pass away or not take over the trust, that a percent of my great-grandparents' property is to go to me. Anything that was supposed to go to my mother is supposed to go to me. But I have four other siblings that are not in the trust, and I know one might want to contest. Everything was done properly, great-grandparents in good health, and they were sane when they did this. Both signed the trust together at the same time it was written. So the question is, can a sibling contest the claim to be the trustee and the beneficiary of this property? Because apparently this person named it to take over as the trustee. And what would I expect in a contest? And do the judges rewrite the trust if my sibling thinks it's unfair? Well, let's unwrap those questions. First of all, anybody can sue anybody for anything. That's the way our legal system works. So the short answer is yes, a sibling could go after and try to challenge the trust. Now, they would have to prove that the great-grandparents lacked legal capacity to sign the trust or that this person who would get everything if the mother passes away, which, by the way, Um, You're assuming right here that the mother has, in fact, passed away and then everything goes to this this great-grandchild. But if uh, everything goes to the mother, then the mother does what she wants. Otherwise, if if the mother had passed away and it's going to the great-grandchild, who's the person asking the question, then in that case, yes, a sibling might very well try to challenge the trust. But here's the deal. They'd have to prove either that the great-grandparents lacked legal capacity to sign a trust or they would have to prove somehow that their sibling influenced the great-grandparents to leave everything to her or him only if the mother had already passed away. That gets pretty tenuous when you actually stop and think about it. 
and they'd have to prove that there was undue influence or overreaching or some reason that would make the plan objectionable, separate from the great-grandparents just deciding that's what they wanted to do. In a case like this, I suspect that um, there's really very little to worry about because I don't see it going very far as long as it was done properly. Now, okay, when someone dies with a living trust, who must the trustee inform of the trust's existence? Well, the key is that someone dying with a living trust will typically make that living trust an irrevocable trust, whereas before it was a revocable or changeable trust. So in this case, person said, I name my son as the trustee and beneficiary. Who must my son inform when I die? Is it only my son, since he's the trustee and only beneficiary? Would he be responsible for informing any of my other children that I've disinherited, even though they're to receive nothing according to the terms of the trust? Well, the short answer is that all beneficiaries of the trust have to be notified and given uh, a copy of the terms of the trust. This is uh, Probate Code Section 16061.7. It's a formal notice that's sent out by the trustee. But also the person's heirs under the law that would have inherited from them uh, in the absence of being excluded by the trust or uh, would have inherited by intestate succession. They need to be notified as well. So the disinherited children would have to be notified in a case like this. All right, well, we're coming up on the first break of the show. You can always give me a call, 800-516-1220, if you'd like to ask your question on the air, or email me at radio at lawbob.com, and you can ask a question that way. Um, Like I said, we're going to be coming back after the first break. We're going to continue with more questions from around this great state of California and hopefully some answers from me. This is attorney Bob Bergman, the estate planning attorney in San Jose. Talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back, Bay Area. Your host, state planning attorney Bob Bergman, Planning Your State Radio. Back uh, after a brief commercial break. Uh, my voice is a little bit stronger now. I had a little bit of water. Hopefully that will help for the rest of the show today. My number, 800-516-1220. If you'd like to give a call and ask a question on the air. If no one calls in, I'll just keep moving forward with the questions and comments on uh, situations around the state of California. Okay, so here's someone that put their children on the deed to their property, and now they want to sell the property, and they want to know um, what they have to do to have their kids taken off the title so they can sell it. it says, the kids put themselves on to protect me, and um, but now I want to sell the property. So do I have to have my children's signatures notarized on a quitclaim deed? Well, that would be one way to do it. Um, Probably in a situation like that, you would have the children do a quitclaim deed, giving the interest back to you before you then sell the property. 
because you don't want to have some of the proceeds of the sale be attributed to your children if it's really all your property. I don't recommend, as a general rule, ever putting children on title of your property, like your real estate. Um, The better play, if you will, is to put it into a trust. If you want your children to protect you in some way, make them the trustees of the trust. Uh, You can put safeguards in the trust to protect you, maybe from a financial predator who comes along. But when you put children on the title of property, you're now creating potential problems for them, potential problems for you, and it's just not a very good way to move. Uh, You can lose tax benefits that way. You could end up having properties sold because of creditors of a child. There's a lot of reasons not to do it, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the show talking about today. I've covered things like that on other shows in the past, and I'll probably cover it again in the future, but I'm not going to do it today. All right. And here's another one. This says, my cousin just died under hospital care. Short before death, a family friend assisted him in signing a final will, which was witnessed and notarized at that time and then sealed. Not sure what they mean by sealed, maybe sealed in an envelope. He had a home, retirement accounts. He had no living parents, siblings, or children. So a close relative, another cousin, was identified as executor of the will, according to the family friend who assisted him. The family friend is holding the will. My cousin had several other cousins, including myself, who may be beneficiaries. At this point, who can open and read the will, and what would be the next steps in carrying out the will? Well, first step is the will should be submitted by whoever's holding on to it. That's the family friend. They have the obligation as custodian of the will, person actually holding the original will, to file it with the probate court in San Diego County. That's to go downtown, turn over the will, maybe get a copy of it, have a copy stamp showing it was filed. Then the next step, the reading of the will, that's something that's generally not done, but certainly whoever is the cousin named as the executor should consider at least providing a copy to everyone. Um, But they're going to need to start a probate here in California if there was just a will and there's real property. So that cousin who's named as the executor really needs to uh, petition the court. If they petition the court and attach the original will to part of the petition, they can save $50 by doing that because they don't have to separately file the will with the court it can be submitted as part of the probate petition. So um, so that right there, that would be the next step. Now, here's a question that is um, a medical question, not medical question, but medical question. Medical is the Medicaid uh, federal assistance program started just for helping with the cost of long-term care for those who couldn't afford it, has been expanded to now include being the primary health care for people who are receiving government um, needs-based benefits such as SSI, Section 8 housing, things like that. So here, this person's saying, my wife's stepfather bought a house um, several years ago 
in December of 2015, he signed a deed over to me, and I recorded it in January of 2016. So it's been more than three years. Loan is still in stepfather's name, but deed is in my name. Loan is current. Stepfather's currently in hospice care. Would Medicaid come after the house when title is in my name? It's been three years since the deed was recorded. Here in the state of California, if you make a transfer, a gift or a transfer for less than full value within 30 months 30 months of applying for Medi-Cal, then in a situation like that, they'll go back 30 months and they may assess a penalty period for Medi-Cal benefits starting from the date the gift was made. In a case like this, it's been more than three years. If it was a personal residence that was transferred, that would have been an exempt asset. It sounds like Medi-Cal benefits have been received but if the transfer was made over 30 months ago, it's likely that uh, the Medi-Cal, which is the Medicaid program in California, would not be able to go after the property and uh, make any claim against it. Now, here's someone who has, this is a grandmother who wants to give her property to her granddaughter when the grandmother passes away. Grandma has a reverse mortgage and wants to know if having the property in a trust will ensure that the equity in the property will go to her granddaughter. So Grandma has a $375,000 value house, owes $260,000 in the reverse mortgage, and the trust is going to leave the assets and the house to the granddaughter. So yes, if you do it that way, certainly if the trust sells the property to pay back the reverse mortgage, and says everything goes to the granddaughter, well, then the granddaughter will be able to receive the net proceeds from the sale of grandma's house. And that's probably a good result. It sounds like there is likely a close relationship between the grandmother and the granddaughter. It's possible the parent in between has passed away, or it's possible that grandma does not have any kind of relationship with her own child or children. We're coming up now on the second break in the show. We've got um, less than a minute to go. And I thought I would encourage you, if you have a question that you want to have me field, then you can email it to radio at lawbob.com or you can call me at 800-516-1220. Thought I'd also let you know as a just... I have uh, more seminars coming up in my office in San Jose uh, on April 6th, which is a week from tomorrow. So check my website at lawbob.com for more information or go to eventbrite.com and look up the Living Trust Seminar. So I'll talk with you after the break. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. So we're going to continue on today uh, here in the third segment. Uh, Again, the number 800-516-1220 if you're just tuning in and you'd like to call and ask a question on the air. 
my engineer Marco is standing by for anyone who'd like to call in. We had a couple last week, and uh, that was uh, quite entertaining. I love talking with people on the air. I think it becomes the most real when I have a live person at the other end there. So here's uh, someone who said their sister was their mother's conservator, and the mother passed away back in December. And uh, now it looks like a probate is commencing, and um, the sister has sent a waiver of bond by heir or beneficiary coming from the sister who's acting as the administrator of the mother's estate. Sister wants uh, this person to sign it but wants to know what is the benefit to signing the waiver form. Well, the benefit is primarily a financial benefit for the estate of someone who's died. In this case, it sounds like the mother did not have a will, so they're proceeding with uh, an administration in probate. Um, And what that would mean is because of that, there's a general requirement that a surety bond be posted by whoever is the administrator, The bond has to be in the amount of the anticipated value of the estate, and the cost of the bond is an expense that comes right out of the estate. So it could be a couple hundred dollars. It could be several thousand dollars, depending on how large the estate is. So the benefit to signing the waiver is that's an expense that the estate doesn't have to pay for in the administration. So if all of the heirs trust the person who's acting as the administrator and knows their character and knows they're not going to, uh, you know, do something fast and loose, then they might want to waive the bond. The purpose of the bond is in case the administrator or executor, if there's a will, in case that person basically steals the money or steals the property and and hops on the next plane to, to Rio de Janeiro, um, leaving everyone else behind with nothing there anymore. The surety bond is to protect against that. It's there to pay out in case the administrator or executor um, has done something uh, and has taken property or embezzled or something like that. So if you're not worried about that, then um, I would say sign the waiver. It's going to save everybody some money um, at the front end and at the back end of that probate administration. Now, here's someone who wants to know, okay, I've just been informed we have Sam, is that what you said? Okay, we have Sam from San Francisco is on the line. He has a question. Sam, can you hear me? You're talking to Bob Bergman, estate planning attorney. Yes, I can, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. Uh, uh, My elderly mother um, had a memory test done and scored quite low and the doctor said that she has uh, vascular dementia mm-hmm. and uh, there's a letter saying that she should not make any uh, medical decisions so my question is if uh, my siblings attempt to change any of her uh, living trust or anything like that, is it, uh, would that nullify any attempts as such? Well, uh, let me ask a couple of questions in reference to that. Uh, you're saying the letter from the doctor said she shouldn't make any medical decisions for herself? 
No, any financial decisions, sorry. Any financial, okay, okay, so financial decisions. That right there is pretty much a determination by her doctor that she is um, financially incompetent, which means that any attempt to have her change her estate plan by anyone coming in and saying, here, sign this and change that, that could be challenged pretty directly. Are you named as, uh, now does she have a trust in place? Yes, and I'm, uh, I am the successor trustee. Okay, well then, with that letter, you probably want to go around to wherever she has accounts and and establish that you're now taking over as the trustee over accounts, if it's a bank account, a brokerage account, things like that. If she owns okay. real estate, um, you could actually file um, with the recorder an affidavit of change of trustee that asserts that she is no longer the trustee because of her incapacity and you are taking over as the trustee on the real estate. Um, kind of like your name is being swapped in for hers. That would be um, another way that if there was, an, for example, to have her sign sign a deed or something and you had already recorded that, that's the kind of thing that would be picked up by, by the... Um, by the assessor, maybe even by the recorder, and bounced or at least brought to their attention that we've got something that's inconsistent. We have someone transferring title that here this earlier document says they're no longer on title. So that would be a way to kind of head that off. But um, it's time maybe to affirmatively implement the estate planning documents that your mother prepared, her trust a financial power of attorney, probably advanced directive if she has that as well, because it sounds like we have the trifecta. All three of those are now activated for whoever the named agent is or you as successor trustee. All right, but it seems that my siblings have already um, filed power of attorney and naming them as uh, controlling that. Okay, is that or did they file something that your mother signed? Yes. Okay, and and no, do my, you know my when understanding, it? My understanding, Bob, is uh, uh, the power of attorney doesn't uh, get invoked until my mother. Pa- uh, well, it's in in force now, but if if she pass when and she passes, then uh, those are nullified. That's correct. Uh, a power of Financial power of attorney, the authority ceases the moment the person who granted the power passes away. An advanced directive can be set up to have the agent's authority continue for some time after death, uh, the purpose being so that you have someone who can authorize release of medical records, for example, if there's if there's a potential malpractice claim or something like that. Um, that can continue on for some time after death, as long as it provides for that in the advance directive. I think that's something the statutory form does not do. It's something that has to be written in. Um, but um, if you're talking about, are you, if you're talking about a power of attorney that was signed on or after this, this opinion was given by the doctor, 
um, it may not be valid based on that and could probably be challenged on the basis that she lacked the capacity to sign okay. at the time. Is okay. this a situation where you have siblings that kind of went in, brought in paperwork and had her sign and had a notary and things like that? I don't know that they were notarized, but um, I did find uh, a document that gave them medical power of attorney, um, and my mother did sign that. Okay, but you're the successor trustee of the trust? Yes. Okay, well, that's probably where all the action is. Okay. If, if her if her property is actually owned by her trust, having a power of attorney does not trump the successor trustee of the trust. Not as okay. a general rule. Um, okay. okay, so at at this point, if if you actually have a concern that your siblings are trying to trying to pull a fast one or something like that, you would always have the option, even though we're trying to avoid this you would have the option of petitioning the court to be appointed your mother's conservator. And okay. and on the basis that she is incapacitated and if you believe that there's that the that the that the documents that your siblings obtained were obtained improperly, asserting that. And if the court agrees with you, then the power of attorney advance directive that were that were signed by your mother would be basically torn up by the court and you would be in charge of everything that those documents would cover. Now that's kind of an extreme thing to do, but if you suspect that there's stuff going on and you know, that there's funny business going on, that might be the way to go. Um, how old's your mother? She's uh, in her late eighties. Late eighties. The yep. other possibility is that there might there might be an elder financial abuse issue here if your siblings went and kind of induced her to sign things when she maybe was not in any kind of mental state to be doing things like that in order to get right. control. So, you know, another last resort would be uh, adult protective services uh, in wh- wherever county your mother happens to be residing. So uh, sorry, Sam, we're coming up on a hard break here. But uh, uh, did I answer some questions for you there, give you some point in in a direction to go? That was uh, very helpful, Bob. Thank you very much. Well, you're extremely welcome. And uh, so thank you. I'm going to hang up now. we got a short time until the third break of the show. Uh, I want to thank Sam from San Francisco for calling in. That was a an excellent question. These kind of situations actually come up fairly frequently out there out there in the real world, and it can be very, very hard when it's family involved. So um, after the break, talk to you again. This is Attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. Now back to Plan Your Estate Radio with Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. Let's move on. The last segment of the show, we're coming around the far turn, heading for the finish line. Have a chance to take maybe one more call before we're done today, 800-516-1220, 800-516-1220. 
Unless someone calls in, I'm going to push forward with more questions and comments from around the state. So uh, let's see. Okay, this is actually a very good question because it's, uh, I find a lot of estate plans are not really, really specific um, in what people intended. Uh, in this case, it says, uh, my stepmother left me and my sister money in her will. There's a lump sum that's supposed to be split between me, my sister, my cousins, and her sister. There's no specific amount to anyone or how much anyone will get. The trustee has not informed us that the house was sold, what we can do about this. This is where the money's coming from. Will the money be distributed evenly since there's no set amount for anyone? Well, if all it literally does is say, I leave my property to uh, John, Jane, Jimmy, Gerald, Janine, and Joseph without giving percentages or specific dollar amounts, then yes, the presumption in the law would be that it is uh, equally, that they each get an equal share. Um, a trust like that might say um, just those people, and if none of them survive, then it goes some other direction. Uh, but as a general rule, if it names a list of people and doesn't specify percentages or dollar amounts, it is presumed to be equal shares. So I think that is a pretty good analysis right there. Now here, um, here this person asked, said, uh, my father's revocable living trust states that the successors, the successor trustees are the following in order of priority. First successor trustee, me. Second successor trustee, my brother. So are we co-successor trustees or am I the person to make decisions? Well, if it says in order of priority, order of precedence, or just lists like one, two, something like that, then basically it's first one, and if that person cannot or is not willing to serve as the successor trustee, then you go to the next one down on the list. That is generally how it would work. Uh, so you'd have first one, then the second one on the list. If they were to serve together there would normally be language that says something to that effect, such as um, John Jones and Jane Jones jointly or the survivor of them, which would mean they serve together. If one of them becomes unable, unwilling to serve or dies, then the other one stays on as the sole trustee. Okay, here's a, this is a, this is a tough one right here. Um, here's a situation um, mother passed away, left the house to three siblings. One of the siblings is uh, in charge of the estate. So no one was living in the house when mom died. So all the brothers, um, the brothers decided uh, that I would move in with my girlfriend and upcoming newborn baby. So this is one of the brothers has been there for two years now with girlfriend and baby now the brother who's in charge of the estate wants to sell the house. So the question is, can they kick this person out of the house? Um, if all three are beneficiaries, can you kick out one of the beneficiaries? A lot of that has to do with whether or not the property has been distributed. If there's a trust, there's a reference to a trustee here. If the property's been distributed out of the trust yet, 
um, then the trustee could still say, you know, yeah, you're going to have to move so we can sell the house. If it was distributed out to all three of the children, then in a situation like that, the only way to get the one out with his girlfriend and newborn baby is to um, have them voluntarily move or as an alternative, go to court for what's called a partition action, which is basically asking the court to order the property to be sold so the respective shares of the three siblings can be distributed to them. Well, I'm going to start winding up the show today. I've got a couple minutes left to go. I want to let you know a few things. First of all, um, I'm in about a year now with this show on the air. I've been very, very uh, grateful for the response I've gotten from people over this past year, both callers on the phone, people who have emailed me questions, people who have come to my seminars because they heard about them on my show, and those people who've come into my office for a free consultation, and especially those who've ended up engaging my services to do estate planning for them. I do seminars regularly out of my office. I have seminars coming up. Give me just a second here. My next seminars will be on Saturday, April 6th um, at uh, my Living Trust Seminar is the first one. My Retirement Plan Trust Seminar is the second one. If you want more information, go to lawbob.com or eventbrite.com and type in Living Trust Seminar or Retirement Plan Trust Seminar, and you'll be able to get more information about those. You can register for them. I have a dedicated seminar room that can hold up to 18 people, and there's still room left for my Living Trust Seminar, and there's plenty of room for the Retirement Plan Trust Seminar. So until next week, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio. I hope you have a great weekend. And again, until next week, I'll talk with you then. Goodbye. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com, or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.